0: Welcome! Hi! I'm Mickey and this is Wikipedia where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hello everyone, it's Mickey here and you are listening to a Wikipedia. This week on the podcast, I speak to Ty Beale, Research Advisor on the Knowledge Leadership Team at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, or GAIN, about nutrient density, bioavailability, and his recent study on global micronutrient deficiencies. Ty talks about his approach to defining nutritional deficiencies and addresses common misconceptions and misunderstandings about which foods are the most nutrient dense we discussed the modern diet how children are impacted by the available food choices the problem of nutrient deficiencies in the developed world where calories are plentiful and the challenge of establishing food guidance systems to address the health of the population rather than a quote unquote healthy population of which most of the developed world wouldn't fall into. Tai is a research advisor on the knowledge leadership team at the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. And in his role, he supports programs, research, evaluation, and dissemination of knowledge to stakeholders. He has an extensive experience base examining sustainable food systems, diet quality, food affordability, food supplies, micronutrient deficiencies, child growth and development, non-communicable diseases, and global health. He obtained a PhD in geography with an emphasis in global nutrition from the University of California in Davis, where he was a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellow. And I've put links to Ty's research gate where you can find all of his publications and a link to where you can find him at GAIN. Before we crack on into the episode, I'd just like to remind you that the best way you can support the podcast is to hit subscribe and leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform. That way, Wikipedia gets a lot more visibility and more people are able to learn from the experts who generously give up their time to speak to me. That would be amazing. Outside of that, you could also jump on my website, mickeywillardin.com sign up to my recipe portal for 12 bucks a month you get access to a regularly updated recipe library you get tools to plan your own meals you get access to me to answer your nutrition and health related queries and you get my weekly emails it's pretty cheap to be honest and that's another great way that you can support the podcast all right team for now though please enjoy this conversation i have with ty biong Dr. Tai Beal, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today about micronutrient deficiency and requirements and, of course, your research. I would love to first get just you to do a little bit of an intro about yourself and also your educational path, because as I understand, it's quite a mix of geography and nutrition, ecology and, and epidemiology and, and all of that stuff.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me on, Mickey. It's great to be here. Um, I had a very unusual start, although I think a lot of people have unusual starts to their careers. I was really focused on music and music production when I started getting into nutrition and um, geography, uh, kind of out of the blue. But I had sort of interest in outdoors and backpacking and camping, as well as this sort of like gardening, food production, and then I kind of. Was working on my own health issues regarding nutrition. So I made some changes to my diet and really improved my health. I was like, this is pretty powerful. I want to learn more. You know, I want to dig deeper, but I was not really sure which area to focus in. And I ended up uh, pursuing a degree in geography at UC Davis, which happened to have a program in international and uh, global nutrition. So it just kind of fit perfectly with what I was interested in. I was able to do an emphasis in the global nutrition department. Um, and, you know, it's really broad. So we're covering things uh, at UC Davis with, you know, agriculture, with ecology, uh, with nutrition, with epidemiology. So really got exposed to a lot of different um, fields.
0: Because as I sort of look at your research and have and heard you talk on podcasts, you have quite a, a broad systems approach to thinking about food, which I feel is sometimes lost in the conversation around nutrition. I think like connecting the dots, I think people don't have that knowledge or that background. Whereas I feel that that's, I mean, obviously that's the area that you sort of work in. So I feel like your education must have um, informed a lot of that.
1: Yeah. I think there, there hasn't really been historically much education or programs that are focused on this really comprehensive approach to food systems. That's probably changing now. So people who entered this area come from some sort of background. Maybe it's nutrition, maybe it's on the environment side. And then they pick up the other information knowledge to some degree throughout their career. Um, And, you know, that that happened to me to some degree, but I did actually have formal training in lots of these different areas. So it gave me some advantage, I think, to have that perspective. But also, like, you know, I have some expertise in certain areas, but I'm not, um, you know, a lot of what I do is sort of, synthesis of some different fields and different information so it's it's really working with the right partners who are experts in key areas to fill the gaps and not having to know all the answers uh, myself of course
0: for sure ty you mentioned your sort of own personal nutrition issue sort of got you interested in nutrition where did you get that sort of original information from
1: Yeah, so I just did it on my own. I started listening to some podcasts, I read some blogs, and then I started getting into some research. But I didn't do, I didn't read as much of the scientific literature at first. It was more of this sort of, you know, Google searches, uh, web searches, searches, and then listening to different voices on nutrition, um, you know, who had podcasts. So I listened to a variety of people. But main thing that I did, you know, I kind of experimented on myself and and tried to follow what kind of felt right, what worked. And interestingly, when I began researching, you know, a lot of that, it informed my research, but I would always try to have this sort of perspective of, oh, I heard this on a podcast, so I read this on a blog. I'm going to look at the data myself because of course, there's a lot of perspectives out there. There's a lot of pretty extreme views. And I think it's really important to just really sense check everything and also look at the data for yourself. And that's, what I've tried to move towards is really um, my experience is important, but when you look at evidence and you're looking at public health, trying to guide populations, that's just one, right? It's just one tiny factor and it's not going to inform really the evidence around what should we do at a population level.
0: Yeah. And I find it really interesting. And I know that we'll likely get into this, but you've got uh, like public health food guidance or like guidelines. And I often wonder whether if people were able to stick to the guidelines because they often get slammed, like the guidelines for being the creator of all of our particular health issues, um, you know, from a a Western world, at least, um, with the chronic disease and and, um, uh, things like that. And I often think, well, if everyone actually was just able to follow the guidelines, I wonder whether we'd still be in that Position, but I think that just the way that things are set up makes it incredibly difficult to follow any sort of guidelines like that. So, therefore, it's just it's challenging. And also, writing food guidelines for a population is challenging when you've got you know so when when you do have that sort of individual um, uh, differences and the nuances and and things like that.
1: Yeah, I I I fully think that if people follow the guidelines at a population level, we'd be much healthier in the U.S. and other high-income countries in New Zealand and the U.K. But I think there is a lot of individual variation. There's a lot of ways to achieve a healthy diet and lifestyle, right? So one example of where maybe people kind of are upset with the guidelines is they don't really count for some of these more therapeutic diets, a ketogenic diet, for example. That can be pretty healthy, right? That can help people lose weight. It can help them optimize a lot of their their health markers. And I think that's a great strategy for a lot of people. Um, dietary guidelines aren't really suggesting Keto diets, right? No, <laughs> it's not really no. in there at <laughs> It's usually point.
0: at the at the, uh, at the End of the, every year there's this Review and I'm, I wish, I'm blanking on The magazine that puts it Out, but um, you've always got The dash at the top and you've got like keto Down, down the bottom, not that the dash isn't A he- a quote unquote healthy Approach, you know, there's lots of amazing yeah. features Of it with the vegetables and the You know, um, fruit and, and things like that But, um, but keto all also- always bottoms out that list.
1: Right. So I think there's just some limitations with the guidelines, but certainly we're not following the guidelines. I mean, you look at the ultra processed food consumption in the US and the UK. uh, I don't know what it is in New Zealand. I don't know what it is in Australia, but like most of the high income countries, it's upwards of 50% of our calories. And so there's no wonder. It's not, I think there's that maybe um, in certain circles, there's sort of a lot of attention given to differences in perspective or at least kind of polarizing issues. But ultimately, it's like, I think you, you said it or you highlighted it simply like, consume a diversity of minimally processed foods and limit ultra processed foods. You know, it's just, it, it doesn't have to be super complicated for most people. Of course, there's always exceptions. And those are some of the people with the loudest voices, right? Like, oh, I have this autoimmune condition, so I need to have a kind of a diet. Yeah. Right. Well, let's not take that to the population level and say everybody needs to eat that way. Right. So but again, like it's really about in general, there's a lot of simple guidance we can give people to eat, you know, have have minimally processed foods and then getting into more optimization. And for people who are real like health gurus who have access to a lot of different things and supplements and everything, then you can get into these really specific diets for sure.
0: Yeah, for sure. And actually Ty, I'm interested to hear what you think, like with with regards before we sort of just um move on to your actual role in gain and, and things like that. But you know, I think about the guidelines again as being guidelines for a healthy population. But of course, I think the most recent research was that ninety-three percent of the US could be considered metabolically unhealthy and and Despite, I mean, I'm not sure uh, what people's views are of New Zealand and, and Australia, but we're not that different, really. Um, so, so, I also wonder about the, um, I suppose, the applicability of something like that in a population which isn't actually healthy as well.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You know, I think that study, you know, over 90% of US adults having. Uh, you know, metabolic issues is really, I think that's really concerning. And and for sure, perhaps the, maybe the most problematic part of guidelines like in the US is this whole, this whole like grains consumption, try to consume, you know, several servings of grains a day. And they say, make half your grains whole grain. Well, I'm not, I'm not opposed to whole grains. I think some people have, have issues with them, but I think those can be really healthy in the right context, but you don't need to be consuming, you know, Sixty percent of your calories from these starchy staples, and and especially not the refined grains, you know, and also in the guidelines, there's, there's quite little on ultra processed foods, and so it's more about these these food groups, and they sort of let slip this whole like refined carbohydrates getting mixed with polyunsaturated vegetable oils, which have you know, in the public health, I have had these like really positive benefits, but of course when you combine those refined starches or sugars and those refined fats. That's what our diet is. That's what these junk foods are that are really driving a lot of these metabolic conditions. And so, certainly, the, I think if I was able to just wave a wand and change the dietary guidance, I would make some adjustments for sure. Um, and I think that point is, is, is right. Like, if you're not metabolically healthy, you, you probably don't want to be consuming very many refined grains at all, right? <laughs> mm, mm,
0: for sure. And I think it's really difficult for consumers to uh, understand the even the difference between whole grain and refined grain when you pick up a Cheerio cereal and it says made from whole grain. And I'm sort of like, well, at one point or another, it was a whole grain, you know, way, way back in the processing chain. Like it's uh, – yeah, there are – at least in New Zealand, there's not a lot of uh, regulation, I suppose, around what food companies can say or, or not say about about the things that they um, claim on a, on a Yeah, packet.
1: I totally agree. The, the thing that's really frustrating to me is this lack of distinction about whole grains and the level of processing like you have whole grains that are fresh, you know, say oatmeal or you know whole wheat bread or millet or buckwheat or something, but then you have whole grains that are in these ultra processed cereals that are highly refined that are really hyper palatable people are over consuming these foods. and it's just it's pretty clear that there's a difference on those in those two products and and there should be that should be recognized i think by public health people
0: yeah for sure and you know when we talk about uh, metabolic health issues and non communicable diseases and what people are eating I always think about nutrition as opportunity cost because if they are filling up on the types of foods that we've just been talking about then they're getting a lot less of the foods that they actually need that provide nutrients and I know that that's a lot of what you look at is the the ability for people to, um, to get nutrients from food. So can we chat a little bit about your work in the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition? Can you just tell people what it is that you sort of look at and then we can sort of delve into that micronutrient density um,
1: piece? Sure. So my uh, organization, it's a, it's a um, global development uh, organization, Really focused on trying to pr- improve access to nutritious and safe foods, and increasingly in produced in sustainable ways. So we really care about. Um, primarily, we've been focused. Our um, target audiences are usually in low and middle income countries, so sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. Um, but we really work globally, um, and, and a lot of the work that I do, I'm on the knowledge leadership team. We generate evidence. We try to learn from our programs so that we can have insights for ourselves and for others in the community. We try to um, answer questions that are preventing us from being able to administer proper programs or investing in the right ways or um, supporting the right policies. So we try to fill a lot of those information or evidence gaps. And that's kind of where a lot of my work comes in is looking at you know what is it? Is it something trying to look at dietary patterns across across, across the globe? What what are people eating? How is that affecting their health? What is a, um, what are the micronutrients in these foods? Where where are their gaps um, and you know micronutrient deficiencies and so on? And so it's been really um, I think helpful for me to to feel like I can do research, but it's really focused on issues that are pressing and of um pretty urgent need to address malnutrition you know and so that's that's kind of where my focus has been on global um, global topics and, and oftentimes you know context specific issues in certain countries
0: yeah and you know you mentioned the sort of malnutrition and people don't often connect malnutrition with developed countries and you know historically we think about the developing countries and their lack of access to, you know, foods which actually have uh, or provide those nutrients. Um, Ty, can we, before? because I'd love to discuss the sort of issue in Western countries and and the rest of it uh, as well, but first can we sort of, um, what defines a deficiency in your work and um, is it just that it's not meeting the recommended dietary intake or allowance?
1: Yeah, maybe I can just clarify a few different sort of terms or ways to look at micronutrients or nutrients in general. So the first level is sort of the food supply. We have data from the Food and Agriculture Organization, (FAO) that looks at, you know, for every country, what is like, what are these, um, what are the foods that are being uh, produced, uh, imported, that are available for consumption? So there's a way you can analyze this. And we've done this where you look at what's the adequacy of the food supply? It doesn't mean people are consuming those diets exactly, but it gives you a sense of what's there. Uh, A more uh, nuanced or a little bit better of a perspective when you have the data is to look at dietary intakes. So these are like a 24-hour recall of, you know, for the last 24 hours, somebody going through a trained interview looking at, okay, so what have you consumed over the past day and night? And you get to specific quantities and you can estimate, you know, what's your usual intake is and what is your risk of inadequate intakes. When you talk about deficiency in my field or in global nutrition, you're really referring to um, biomarkers of micronutrient status. So these are like measurements in your blood or serum that can actually tell you what level of micronutrient you have in your blood. So if you're deficient, there are pretty commonly accepted cutoffs for deficiencies. So uh, for B12, folate, vitamin A, zinc, iron, vitamin D recently we had a paper come out yesterday where we're looking at these global deficiencies and took a while to sort of find what are we going to use for the threshold so complicated when you get into like what are you going to like the essay use of the test used in any context can be different yeah the adjustment for inflammation which can influence the prevalence quite a bit can vary and you don't always have access to the the same type of data. It's not standardized across countries, So you have to make a lot of decisions along the way. But ultimately, deficiency is, you know, in, in our view, is having too little of a certain nutrient in your body. And that's assessed with these biomarkers that you can say, okay, if you have, if your threshold at the population level or at the individual level, if you have less than this in your body, then you are at risk for these, these health consequences. And, and those can vary uh, widely. Depending on how you know severe your deficiency is and what deficiency it is, and what other insults you have, whether you're having repeated infections if you have unsafe water, nutrient deficiencies are going to take a bigger toll on you than if you're in you know a western country with with not as many insults that way, so I know it's a long answer to your question, but it's it's just getting at this like there's different levels of information yeah and we They don't always align either, so we try to make the most sense we can, and try to triangulate data when we can to make inferences.
0: Yeah, no, that makes um, perfect sense. And you know, I've heard people talk about the fact that the requirements that we see in our nutrient sort of guidelines uh, are they've been set like many decades ago. In some cases, yet uh, the sort of our environment has changed out. Our body size has changed. So there's so many more people uh, weigh a whole lot more now than what they um, they would when you know they were sort of establishing the guidelines. So you know, has, does that change what could be considered adequate? And then of course it's that term adequate as well. So we've got these sort of recommended dietary intakes, but in some instances, some of them are so incredibly low, like protein. It might be enough to um, survive on, but not necessarily sort of thrive. On. So I'd sort of wonder, I, what are your thoughts around what we're told we need and, and what we potentially need? Have you sort of, you know, done any work on that, Ty?
1: Yeah, I think you make really good points. Um, I would just say for starters that even when you use these sort of markers of what we consider adequate, you know, not necessarily saying it's optimal, people are falling way short. So regardless of how you define it, there's a big issue, like people are not getting the nutrients they need. Um, that's worldwide. It's in high-income countries. It's in much higher and low and middle-income countries. But it's happening. But I think the the sort of issue around opt- optimal values for protein. I'm not an expert, but I certainly am pretty convinced that the RDA, for example, in the U.S. is not necessarily optimal for people. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons why you would you could potentially want to consume more than that. And I think for micronutrients, that that could be the case for certain nutrients. There's also a risk of some nutrients. You know, having too much iron can be problematic, particularly heme iron, um, especially if your body's not, not great at um, regulating that, if you have any particular condition. So it's not always like more is better. There are upper limits. There are potential risks for, for that consumption. But I, I, do, um, I do think that there are probably levels of certain micronutrients that consuming above the recommended intake could be potentially beneficial for some people. And your point about body size, I don't know the answer to that, like whether larger body size means you necessarily require, you have higher requirements, but certainly it's, it's possible and it would make sense. I do know that there is a lot of evidence that people who are overweight or obese often have much higher risk for deficiencies. So that could be for, because they're, they're body size and they have high requirements, it could be because they're eating more nutrient poor foods, more ultra-processed foods. It's hard to know. Uh, but in general, when you when these RDAs are set or the recommended nutrient intakes are set, they're not, they're already well above what the average requirement is. And the reason they have to do that is because when you look at a population level, if you just recommended the average nutrient requirement and that's normally distributed, even on both sides of that distribution, half of the population would, would not get enough of the, the, the nutrient. And so you, what they do is they go two standard deviations above that for the recommended nutrient intake, which ends up being about, you know, 97% um, of, you know, the recommended intake. So it's, it's going to cover basically the 97 98% of the population's requirements if you meet that target. And so for most people, it probably won't be a a, a problem if you're getting the the recommended nutrient intake because it's already sort of designed to take in that variation of requirements because everybody has different requirements depending on their individual factors. Yeah. Um, But it also doesn't guarantee that you're going to have optimal levels, especially if you're an athlete or if you're trying to, you have certain goals that you're trying to achieve.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting, Ty, when I think about whether people are meeting their nutrient intakes, and and I really want to talk about the paper that was just released yesterday as well. So just in New Zealand, we have this study, and I think it's called the Cost of Living Study. And so it's a an organisation as part of the University of Otago, they calculate how much it costs for, for someone on a, on a budget versus someone who can afford a little luxuries and, and a little more, and they determine the types of or how much it costs and the types of food you need to measure or sorry to to meet the mark in terms of the recommended dietary intake and um, for foods or for nutrients like I know ones that you're interested in like iron and zinc and b12 the amount of animal protein they recommend in these diets is actually really low and the diet itself wouldn't meet these recommendations unless they included, as they do, a drink that we have here called Milo. And I'm not sure if you've heard of Milo. Um, Yeah, yeah, a Nestle drink, and it's fortified with all of these sort of nutrients. And I know that fortification absolutely has its place and is super valuable, but no, I I have no idea about this, but do we know, is there any information on how well we utilize that you know, fortified products as much as what we would if they were in the food that it originally, that you'd naturally find it in? Like, is there much information on that?
1: Yeah, so um, the form that the nutrient comes in affects the bioavailability or how much your body absorbs. It's not really the case that fortified nutrients and fortified foods are necessarily worse. They're not always worse, you know, in terms of bioavailability, but they're, I should say they're less. They're less robust in ensuring you have your body regulates how much you need. So, and there's there's also a lot of synergistic interactions between nutrients and compounds. So even non-essential compounds that potentially impact the health or the way that you metabolize nutrients. So, I think that the evidence suggests getting most of your nutrients through foods, through you know whole foods or foods that have intrinsic. Nutrients in them, I think is better for a few reasons. One of them is that adding nutrients through fortified foods to nutrient-poor foods, you're not replicating the whole food. So there's thousands of compounds that are in that whole food that are potentially could have beneficial effects. We don't really know. We know that there are a lot of missing compounds in, in something like a highly refined product that has a handful of fortified nutrients. There's also some concern about excess if you have certain nutrients for example if you have a lot of iron through supplements or through fortified products it can be risky to your body whereas if you have that iron in food it's not it's held within a food matrix and it can be less problematic this is you know the case if you have infection or if you have malaria one of the reasons but you know when you're working in a lower and middle income country and you have interventions that fortify foods and provide supplements; those are really beneficial. But you also want to treat the malaria at the same time, because if you have this free iron in the bloodstream, it can actually exacerbate the infection.
0: Yeah, cool. So those are
1: sort of risks. It doesn't mean you can't use fortified products; you have to use them carefully, or supplements; you have to use them while treating, you know, the infection if if it's there. Um, but yeah, my general sort of take is it's. Uh, there's a lot of health benefits from foods beyond the handful of nutrients. So, the other risk is like we talked about ultra processed foods earlier. There really is a risk, given how um, much they're increasing globally, that if you just think the solution to deficiencies is only through fortification, we're just going to transition to come much more into the realm of obesity and diet related non communicable diseases. So, diabetes, heart disease, um, cancer. And that, that's concerning. I think from a policy standpoint, I would like to see more fortification that takes place as a safety net. It's sort of behind the scenes. You're not necessarily telling consumers to eat unhealthy foods. For example, if you fortify salt, you fortify sugar, whatever it is that you're fortifying, you don't want to say like, eat a bunch of cookies so that you get your nutrients, right? You want to like have that as a safety net, but you still want to have the messaging be consumed. These minimally processed foods for all these other reasons. Yeah, um, and 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 then have that fortification there as, as a safety net.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think the the only food guidelines that come to mind that seem to emphasize in a way that um, is very obvious the minimally processed sort of foods. In addition to you know how to eat and the cultural aspects of of eating and stuff are the Brazilian guidelines. Whereas. Uh, in the US and in um, the UK and Australia and New Zealand, we are all variations of the same guidelines. It, it sort of feels like there's a little bit more sort of talk around that, but there's not, hasn't been a lot of um, necessarily um, change over the years with respect to to what we're
1: told. I really do appreciate the Brazil guidelines, and I'm glad you brought that up. They focus on food. They focus on peeling. Right, as opposed to unwrapping. So they, they, they do try to get at the processing in a way that I think most dietary guidelines haven't. But I think that in the future, um, I think countries will be moving in that direction. I hope so. Mm,
0: mm. It almost feels like there's no choice because what, you know, it, the, the, the same old, same old obviously isn't working. So you'd, you'd, you'd hope that someone uh, who's responsible or, or uh, in that space will start making different decisions. Ty, can I ask you about your paper that was just released yesterday, as I saw on Twitter um, last night. So can we talk through um, the, um, so it was published in The Lancet and you did find like a high percentage of people had that, um, had more than one micronutrient deficiency and it wasn't just in developing countries it was in developed countries as well so can you just chat us through what you did and some of the major highlights
1: sure so we took um we took a look at what data was out there to try to answer this question and initially we were looking um, i previously mentioned you know we're looking at. there's food supply data that looks at what food is available for consumption there's uh, dietary intake data and then there's this biomarker data we originally tried to get into the world of diet data and and proxy data because there's just not a lot of data on biomarkers for populations for micronutrient status. But we ended up having to shift away from that approach because the data just doesn't always line up. Like if you have an inadequacy in the diet, it doesn't mean you're going to have the same level in the the biomarker. And so there's just so many factors that prevent that from really being a, a clear relationship. And so we just used biomarker data, so we had to compile this data. We had a partner at Emory the Brinda collaboration where they um, already had a bunch of data sets, 20 data sets or so and we um, we did you know a search process for data we we contacted stakeholders and partners that we already knew of who had data to get access. It was this long process, but we obtained all this data. It was you know it was only about twenty four data sets uh, across the world, and that's not it's not a huge number of data sets for our global estimate. We um, tried to standardize the approach. Um, what biomarkers are we going to use? What thresholds are we going to use? What what approaches for uh, inflammation are we going to use, et cetera, so that we can have really kind of standard approaches, even though there's a lot of un- unknowns. So we, we then we have this question of, okay, well, nobody's really looked at, a, a, a globally at least, at like the risk of any deficiency. It's usually... What is the prevalence of vitamin A deficiency, iron deficiency, et cetera? So we had to try to find data sets where there were multiple biomarkers for different micronutrients in the same individuals. So we could really answer that question. Do you have a deficiency in vitamin A or uh, iron or zinc? And so we ended up kind of narrowing down. We had six or seven, uh, we called them sentinel nutrients that we think, you know, these are public health issue. They're lacking in a lot of populations. But then we didn't have have enough data on all of those nutrients and all of those nutrients in the same individuals across countries. So we ended up selecting a core set of nutrients. So we looked at iron, zinc, and folate for women. And we looked at iron, zinc, and vitamin A for children. And that was because we had more data on those together. They're higher prevalence or they're just really frequently measured across countries. So then we modeled what is the risk of any deficiency and tried to estimate for some, some data gaps. So we got this sort of estimate at the regional level, and the global level, and it was pretty shocking, even though I I was sort of expecting there to be high prevalence, you know, two thirds of women worldwide have at least one deficiency. It's more than half of the population and just over half the population of preschool age children um, under five years of age have at least one deficiency. So this is one, I mean, one in two people at least worldwide are having these deficiencies. It's not a small issue. We also looked at the um, specific values in certain countries because we had data on specific countries. So many of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia had much higher prevalence. So nine in 10 women in several of these countries were deficient in one or more micronutrients. I think what's perhaps even more surprising was in high-income countries, how high of a prevalence we found. So in the UK, it was over half of women having at least one deficiency. In the US, it was about a third of women. Iron iron deficiency was 20%, a little over 20% in both the UK and the US for women. Uh, Zinc deficiency was over 10% in both countries. Uh, The the folate and vitamin D deficiency in the UK was around 20%. So it's just pretty ubiquitous. Every country has these uh, deficiencies. I think they're much more severe In the low and middle income country context, because they're higher prevalence, there's a much higher risk of multiple micronutrient deficiencies. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of other um, insults to people in those contexts, whether it's inadequate like healthcare access, there's not clean water, there's, you know, you're exposed to infections and parasites. And so those issues kind of act synergistically to cause much greater health burdens. But I I think there's no question that we have an issue worldwide and... I think if, there's, if nothing else, this is a paper just to, for advocacy to say, look, we need to pay attention to nutrient density of foods. We need to pay attention to nutrient adequacy, even though in high-income countries, a larger burden is from non-communicable diseases. We don't want to ignore that, but but certainly we can't just pretend like everybody has all the nutrients they need. It's just not true.
0: Ty, does it, do they intersect at all, like the nutrient deficiencies that that you've highlighted and the issue with non-communicable diseases. So is, you know, is it the same problem but manifested in a different way? I don't know.
1: There are certainly some risks from nutrient deficiencies to non-communicable diseases. It's, it's not really my area of expertise. And honestly, there's not a lot of research that's been done on that, but there, there has been some, and right. I think there is a link. Um, I think the solution really can, can be to improve healthy diets that address the nutrient inadequacies and the, the diet-related non-communicable disease risk. Really, when you shift to a diversity of minimally processed foods and you focus on nutrient-dense foods, you're going to be minimizing your risk for chronic diseases. There may be some trade-offs, like maybe having a larger share of plant-based foods can potentially reduce your risk for, for non-communicable diseases. But puts you at a little bit of an increase for you know nutrient deficiencies, and then vice versa. If you have more animal source foods, you can be at a you know greater protection of nutrient deficiencies, but perhaps uh, slightly increased risk for non-communicable diseases. It depends. Yeah. Uh, but I would I would like to see sort of this sort of central approach that addresses both of those issues simultaneously.
0: Yeah, and I feel like with particularly in New Zealand, at least there is a focus on those NCDs and eat less, move more, and I'm not suggesting that that's not a good approach, it just hasn't worked to date. And so sort of shifting that narrative to actually how can we increase our opportunity to eat these things which we know we need, then by default, as you say, it's very difficult to get the same number of calories from the foods that are causing the potential sort of um, excess issues.
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty unfair to say eat less, move more, but we're going to make a food environment that is, you know, addictive, hyperpalatable foods that few people can resist. I mean, it's not really about willpower. It's not like a, it's not a a flaw in a person if they can't resist these foods. It's not like, it's not like it's easy, you know, biologically, the the food chemists are designing these foods so that we, we want them and we want to consume more and, you know, the taste, the texture, everything about them. So- yeah, I feel like it's a bit unfair when when there's guidelines like that that say, "Just eat less and move more, and you'll be fine." Yeah, certainly um, there are, there are. We know there are people who can have eat whatever they want and stay really slim. And those people, for whatever reason, have you know certain genetics or characteristics that enable them to do that. It doesn't yeah. mean if somebody else can't do that that they're <laughs> just choosing the wrong foods or they're they're somehow like not capable. It's just really about. You know, it's it's a problem for certain people's genetics and um, their characteristics. And I think that's why we need that population. level. We need to really consider this like in a much more uh, systematic way. How do we actually shift away from the addictive foods that are making us sick towards these more wholesome foods? And there's a there's a tension there with industry and funding and profit. You know, profit margins are definitely much higher for ultra processed foods. Shelf life is 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 much higher, convenience, um, sometimes even affordability. So all of these factors play a role. And it's also like we have to work hard to make uh nutritious, healthy foods, we need them to be easy, we need to be quick, accessible, desirable, right? Like they have to appeal to social status in, in context. That's a that's a lot to try to overcome. But um I think it's 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 definitely worthwhile pursuing those efforts because we can't just expect people to make all the right choices or have access to all the right foods, right? It's just yeah. a challenge.
0: Yeah, for sure. And Ty, what are the implications of being deficient in these nutrients for the groups that you looked at, like the children, and of course the um, was it women of reproductive age? Was the other group where you had quite good data for?
1: Yeah, so it's women of reproductive age. So that's about fifteen to forty-nine years. Um, and then, children, preschool age children, less than five. So, the consequences are pretty wide, like pretty uh, diverse. So, you can have anything from uh, one: your immune system is reduced, so you have uh, increased susceptibility to infections. There can be dirt birth defects. So, if you, if, uh, you know, a mother doesn't have enough folate, you can have uh, the, the fetus can develop a neural tube defect that can be life-threatening or you know debilitating. Um, there can be reduced growth and um, cognitive development. So when young children, a really critical age, especially when they first start eating solid foods at about six months to 23 months, they need a lot of really nutrient-dense foods because their brain's rapidly developing, their body is, they're growing faster than any time in life. Um, you know, Adolescents also growing the second fastest um, growth velocity in, in life there's there's a lot to, to show that there's actually decreased um, cognitive performance or school performance with deficiencies. So you're not performing as well in school, you can't think as clearly. you can't focus. Um, there are severe effects, you know, with, with vitamin D deficiency, like blindness, and ultimately, like, work productivity, your economic potential, your, you know, human potential in general for what you can accomplish is really reduced. So it varies depending on the severity of the condition, whether you have multiple deficiencies, whether you have other morbidities at the same time. But it's a, it's a, it can be a serious issue. It's not, it's not just something to shrug off and say, "Well, who cares?" Uh, you know, anemia is another consequence of iron, B twelve, folate deficiencies. Anemia can take away your energy. Severe anemia can be life threatening. Um, so these consequences can be severe. I also think we don't want to exaggerate and say. Well, if you have, if everybody who has uh, any sort of suboptimal level of micronutrient status, they're on their deathbed or something, right? Like it's not, it's not necessarily that that's not the case, but there's some sort of happy medium of appreciating the severity and trying to say, okay, well, within, within reason, like there are other issues. It's not necessarily the end of the world if you have a deficiency, but let's also try to address it.
0: Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And the things that you were talking about, they really speak to the intergenerational impact of the deficiencies, right? So if you've got uh, women who are deficient in these nutrients who are then having children who sort of start life out deficient in an environment with a food supply that isn't necessarily ideal for being able to get those nutrients, and it's just this real flow-on effect, and and it absolutely has health and economic and social consequences. Like, it's it's pretty, it feels like that's a really obvious sort of story that is just being missed. I don't know, when, when you think about sort of public health nutrition.
1: Yeah. I mean, in my field, it's not missed. It's like what we focus on, right? There's even a, a word for it. It's the first 1000 days. It's the the year where you're, you're, you're a fetus and you're developing in the, in the mother's room and then you're born and then you have you know, you're breastfeeding and then you're getting access to these first complementary foods. But certainly I think outside of my field, which is just a narrow niche, it's not appreciated. But you're absolutely right. Like, even if you look at just the data on the the stunting, so the short stature of a mother, the risk goes to more than twofold in general for that the child is going to be stunted. I mean, that's just like some, you know, a, a girl who's stunted at birth. 20 years later has, gives birth to a kid, she's already at significantly increased odds of having poor health outcomes for the child. And so it is definitely a, an intergenerational issue. And that's kind of why it's so hard to break out of these cycles. It's not just like, well, you can, at some point in your life, you're going to get the healthy foods you need. It's like, no, you, you need to have these during these critical periods of growth and reproduction, right, to make sure that you get started out on the in the right way and these deficiencies are a big contributor to that intergenerational cycle of malnutrition
0: yeah for sure and um stunting isn't just short stature is it
1: yeah so stunting really the the reason that stunting is used because it's easy to measure it's quick and affordable and it's a monitoring tool we can look across countries and say wow Stunting is 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 pretty severe. There are a lot of actions that we know that need to be done to address this. But the the more important issue than just the stunting is well, it's, they're both important. The physical the physical redu- uh, growth constraint is is a problem, but also the cognitive issues, the the you know development, the psychosocial, all of these factors are sort of correlated. So it's it's both it's the st- it's the stunted growth but it's also the lack of brain development neurocognitive development during these critical stages where you're you're being set back from these uh, deficiencies
0: yeah yeah and and tie your a paper and I think it was earlier this year that you published which actually looked at the types of foods that we could be including that are actually really um, dense in these nutrients because a lot of people hear iron and zinc and they're like well you know I eat a lot of leafy greens or I have chicken um, you know I know that I'm getting my micronutrients that I need but oftentimes what's in food doesn't necessarily equate to what we can actually use. Can we talk a little bit about the sort of the priority foods that lists that you've done research on that sort of ranks foods looking at both bioavailability and, and nutrient status?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think that's a good point. Like chicken's a really interesting one because, you know, if you're, if you're sort of a proponent of, you know, some animal source foods or moderate animal source foods or whatever, Chicken usually is like okay it's pretty good like you know chicken and fish are given pretty clean pass compared to to say beef or something but they're they're not as you know chicken's not that dense in nutrients compared to uh beef or con- compared to some of these other foods so when you look really um the exception to that is the the liver or the organs of the the chicken or other poultry those are super dense so in general organ meats like liver spleen kidney heart uh, in various animals are the new, most nutrient-dense foods. Uh, that's pretty clear. They contain high quantities of nutrients. They're um, bioavailable forms of those nutrients. Small fish, so when they're consumed with the bones and skin, they're they're very nutrient-dense. Um, dark green leafy vegetables are uh, nutrient-dense, but I think that's important to recognize, like it depends on the nutrients. So the great sources of vitamin A. Yeah. Good source of iron. Um, they're not the most bioavailable iron, but it's still good. They're a good source of calcium. Yeah. And the bioavailability of calcium is pretty similar across most dark, dark green leafy vegetables compared to, say, dairy. Uh there there are some exceptions. I think in the in the US, one study showed that spinach uh, had very low bioavailability of calcium, around five percent. But for the most part, most dark leafy greens are, are great sources. Bivalves, so these are like clams, mussels, oysters, super nutrient dense. The problem is they're pretty expensive in a lot of contexts. Um, I don't even eat them very regularly because of that reason. Uh, so crustaceans like, you know, crab, uh, lobster, shrimp; those are also nutrient dense. And then you have um, the the you know the beef, the goat; these are sort of the mm. ruminant meat, eggs, milk. And even um, canned fish, when you have something like canned salmon or mackerel or, um, you know, even a larger fish, but it has the bones and the skin uh, preserved in there, it's it's very nutrient dense. And we also have, uh, I think the study also showed mutton and lamb, which is another, you know, that's also ruminant meat. So those are the top sources. You know, other sources, um, other dairy products, um, just fresh fish in general, pulses, which are these. also called legumes, lentils, beans, peas. Those are pretty dense. And then certain um, traditional grains. So maybe not as common. Quinoa is the more common one in the West, but uh, teff, millet, sorghum, fonio. these contain pretty high densities of uh, minerals as well and, and, and folate. So those are the foods um, you don't really see those always promoted. I mean, animal source foods. When you get into the discussion around environmental impact, they get a bad rap, and there's a big concern around their sustainability. So I think there's sort of this tension of well, we know the top sources of foods to meet micronutrient needs are largely animal source. You know, in addition to dark, dark leafy greens. How do we do that sustainably? Also, how do we optimize your your noncommunicable disease risk? with that effort to try to meet micronutrient needs. And I think the perspectives will go all over the place on that, right? Some People think that you need to minimize animal source foods. Others think you need to just eat as much as you want. Um, but I think there's there's some balance there where we, we wanna have enough and not too much yeah. for other reasons.
0: Yeah, for sure. And certainly the um, message out there in the public health really is to reduce, Consumption of, of the animal products that do have a lot of these, you know, really important micronutrients that we need and that we can actually access. Because with some of the other foods, even the ones that you listed, what is the potential impact of some of those, what people call anti-nutrients or factors that might change our absorption factor? So does, like, how much of a difference does that
1: make? It makes a big difference. I think this is underappreciated in the plant-based community. Um, I can give you some examples from our study. So in this analysis, which I just mentioned the kind of results of, we looked at the bioavailability differences um, for iron and zinc. Um, Not everybody knows this, but vitamin A already sort of accounts for these differences in the requirement. So the it's called a retinal activity equivalent when you have a carotenoid from a plant food. It's about a 12 to 1 ratio that's assumed. Iron and zinc don't have that. So most studies, they just don't adjust because it's too complicated. We say, well, we know that external factors, the total diet, individual variation influences absorption and bioavailability. So it's hard to estimate. Well, for us, it's like the risk of not adjusting is actually far greater than The uncertainty of how exactly uh, bioavailability is uh, impacted on average. So, we adjusted for iron and zinc. And, you know, we looked at the amount of heme iron in foods. We looked at the amount of phytate, which is one of the key anti nutrients when you think of uh, compounds in foods, plant source foods, that inhibit absorption of minerals. So, uh, ruminant meat like beef, we estimate is about the iron bioavailability is about twice as high as that in. Plant source foods, so dark green leafy vegetables, or beans, or lentils, or peas. So, if you have an equivalent portion, say two milligrams, in the serving of iron, only half of that—you know—it's—it's half has half the bioavailability if it comes from that plant source versus uh, an animal source. For zinc, it's about um, seventy percent higher for animal sources, depending on the source, compared to uh, the best sources in it in plant source foods, which are these beans, peas, lentils. They're really high in phytate, and as an example of this, um, some of your listeners may have heard of the um, Eat Lancet report or the Planetary Health Diet approach. This is sort of this h- highly plant-based diet, um, about fourteen percent of calories from animal source foods. Uh, you know, the recommended one, but as low as zero percent. We looked at this this um, from a nutrient adequacy perspective, and a uh, um, Phytate perspective, which is that that key anti nutrient, and the diet that's recommended has about twenty five hundred milligrams to three thousand milligrams of phytate, which is sort of off the charts. We don't really even know what that does because in dietary guidelines we have four different cutoffs for zinc um, recommended zinc intakes that are adjusted based on how refined your diet is and how much phytate's in there. Yeah. So the estimate is for 300 milligrams of phytate all the way up to 1,200 milligrams. So you get the lowest bioavailability with a a diet that has 1,200 milligrams. Well, this is two to three times that amount. That's going to have an effect on bioavailability. We just don't really know how much, but we know it's significant. So in general, if you can try to level for the bioavailability, you can get a better sense, and that's why our results really kind of show the potential and the value of animal source foods because they're accounting for that um, difference in bioavailability.
0: As I understand it, was liver like up there, like one of the liver and spleen and the organs, were they like um, off the charts amazing in terms of those nutrients, even compared to the more commonly consumed beef in, or of people who eat meat? Like, like well, there's quite a difference even there, isn't there?
1: Yeah, like one of the metrics that we used was, I suppose it's the metric, um, was this metric where we look at what is the quantity of grams or calories to meet an average of a third of the recommended intakes of these six nutrients. So, iron, zinc, calcium, folate, B12, and vitamin A. And when you do that, you get a variable portion size that will meet that same equivalent. And that's just kind of a proxy to say, okay, We're leveling these foods that we know how they compare. Well, when you look at liver, for example, and this is combined liver from different animals, it takes only 11 calories or seven grams to meet that average of one third of these recommended intakes. It's very small, right? It's just a tiny, a tiny amount that you would have to eat to get to get those nutrients. Um, It goes up when you get to um, other animal source foods, dark green leafy vegetables So for dark green leafy vegetables, 72 grams, um, sorry, no, 72 calories and 239 grams. So quite a bit of, uh, you know, a big salad there. When you get up to some of these foods that are considered, um, have been considered nutrient dense or nutritious before, I mean, the the values can go off the charts. So uh, if you look at, let's see. Even if you look at pulses, so these are beans, peas, and lentils, you have um, 667 uh, calories are required to make that same amount, and uh, to meet one third, grams.
0: Okay, so to meet one third of your one third,
1: an average of a third mm. of the recommended intakes. When you go to um, chicken, chicken it takes over a thousand calories, uh, almost 500 grams. Um, other fruits. So these are the non vitamin A rich fruits. It takes over a thousand calories, uh, almost 2,000 grams.
0: Goodness. Um,
1: and then when you look at even whole grains. So, whole grains, um, f- well, they're not recommended for their high nutrient density necessarily, they're for their potential benefits for um, non communicable disease risk. But in terms of the micronutrients that are commonly lacking, it takes almost 2,000 calories and a thousand grams of whole grains to meet that one third of requirements. So this gives you a sense of the magnitude of the differences. And it also, I think, is encouraging from a sense that if you focus on the most micronutrient animal source foods, organ meats, uh, you know, small fish, uh, bivalves and other shellfish, even beef and eggs to some extent and dairy, you don't have to consume huge amounts to help to, to contribute big big amounts of these bioavailable nutrients and even just consuming some increases the bioavailability of other nutrients. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a lot of benefit for a small amount of consumption. And I think that is, I think an important message, even for, let's say that you sort of have the view that we need to minimize animal source foods for environmental or ethical or whatever reason. I think it's um, at a population level, we should really still care about trying to have at least a moderate amount of consumption of these really nutrient dense animal source foods because we know half of the population is deficient in at least one nutrient and this is going to go a long way just trying to ensure access to these foods and and that's you know what my organization gain does is we try to improve access to these nutritious foods and we try to do that in a sustainable way and so in certain contexts like in Mozambique we have a program where Animal source food consumption is actually pretty low, and we're trying to increase it sustainably with some key foods. And uh, we know from evidence on intervention studies and trials that uh, giving, providing animal source foods like an egg, for example, can actually improve child growth and and nutrient adequacy.
0: Yeah. Is that the, uh, Ty, is is that the trial where families are given like chickens to be able to um, have eggs for the family is that is that the same one that you're talking about
1: there's been a few um, there's one the one that's kind of the most compelling was in Ecuador it's called the laluon project um, and they um, gave young children I think it was six to twenty three months it could have been under five years of age they gave them one egg a day so they actually provided the egg there's been many many uh, other trials where you provided chicken or livestock also but when you provide them you can actually more likely ensure that they're going to eat them with this food. You give them nutrition education on top of that. And there was a, a significant improvement in cognitive outcomes and in, in child growth. There was a study in Kenya that that did this for, I think, adolescents, where there was different animal source foods were added, um, and there was, a, there was a significant improvement. So you can get these improvements through, um, to some extent, through fortified foods or supplements um, during critical stages, but uh, it's it's important to just know, like notice, like there are um, there are a lot of challenges with trying to just meet everybody's needs through through supplements, and it's part of the it's part of the solution. But so are animal source foods, you yeah. know, from my perspective.
0: Yeah, for sure. And just clinically speaking, when I talk to people about their diet, I know that they have a much easier time adhering to um, the sort of principles that I promote, which is a a higher protein, um, fresh vegetables, a lot of fiber, when they actually do have a decent amount of protein in their diet. uh, Even, you know, probably more than what is, uh, well, definitely more than what is recommended by the RDI, just because hunger is then taken care of. So they're not drawn to the type of hyperpalatable foods that are just so readily available.
1: Yeah, I think there's a a, a satiety factor that is important. I think protein and fiber Water content in general can really contribute to right, so yeah i I fully agree
0: yeah, ty um finally, I know you're a dad, do you despair at the diets of children that you see around you I mean, I know obviously you're not going to make judgment or anything like that, but i'm I'm pretty sure I saw a tweet from you a few months ago that showed sort of the type of food that was being served in maybe the school or the kindergarten of um, where your children went. Do do you sort of ever think more widely of um, children in, you know, America and other Western nations and just um, despair at what's being recommended that they eat?
1: Yeah, I certainly do. I I think the U.S. is actually probably far worse than most other high-income countries when you look at school meals. I've had some colleagues reach out about their meals in Italy and and Switzerland about how, you know, how healthy their school meals are, and I'm certainly jealous. Um, So I want to say for starters that there is an issue of food security even in the U.S., and school meals, um, for many families, school school meals are still healthier or better than what they're going to get at home. They may not even have access to enough food at home. There's a lot of reasons. They also keep kids in school uh, globally in different contexts. So I'm not against school meals. I recognize that it's hard to provide in- incredibly healthy meals at low cost and that are you know perishable and all that. But I'm pretty disappointed and discouraged in the, the foods that are being served and that are part of the national strategy. So as an example, these are oftentimes ultra-processed foods. Um, I, my daughter, who's five now, she, she has had, and now I send her with, with um, lunch, but for breakfast, she's had cinnamon, um, cinnamon rolls, which are whole grain, but they're pretty much just full of sugar and highly, highly processed. I heard her mention pancakes um, before, Um, these sugary breakfast cereals, Um, sandwiches with like, you know, turkey or or ham, like processed meat sandwich, but with no vegetables. I mean, I think she's gone a day at school where there's no vegetables or fruits that she's consumed because it's just like wasn't required or whatever. It's up to the child to choose. The other thing is chocolate milk and strawberry milk. These were the options. So if a kid, if a five-year-old or older, any kid goes into a cafeteria and they can have regular milk, strawberry milk, or chocolate milk, what are they going to choose?
0: I know, right? We're (laughs)
1: going to choose the sweet milk, right? And so it's just not, it's just, that's not really ethical. Like from my perspective, we should, we, we shouldn't be making these options of really unhealthy foods. And I know, like, I think the harder part for me is like, they're promoted as healthy foods. We have healthy foods here. We have we follow the guidelines, and that's where I think your your sort of comment about you know what are these guidelines. You can follow the guidelines and actually slip under the radar with unhealthy foods. The cinnamon roll, probably. I mean, I don't know. It seems like there's for one school meals don't actually follow the guidelines. They have um, much too uh, much too high amounts of added sugar, but you you know whole grains are part of that. So. You can say, look, you're just getting a serving, of, a good serving of whole grains, yeah. but it's still junk food and it's it's not going to be, it's not going to help them focus at school. I've noticed it disrupts their ability to enjoy and appreciate healthier foods. Yeah. You know, like when you have these, te- these really um, appealing textures and combination of, you know, starch and fat and sugar and salt and flavorings, my, you know, my girls would come home and they're, they're just not going to eat without a lot of work they're not going to eat the healthier options because it affects your your body like your even your microbiome can really influence the foods that you desire so it takes you know if you don't have those options you just eat minimally processed foods your body um will be more used to those and i think it's easier for to consume those regularly when you have a lot of junk food regularly then you want more sugar in things. You want you know you want things to be sweeter. You want more flavor. You want things to taste give you that sort of high after you have it. That's just um, you know super appealing. So, in short, I'm very disappointed. I would love to be able to advocate for better um, school meals, especially in the U.S. Um, I'm not a policy expert, but yeah. I, I would surely love to be able to find ways to help contribute to that effort.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. What you've said about uh, the fact that they are sort of quote unquote healthy according to the guidelines, whereas it just really um, highlights the issue that people have, whereas they look to the guidelines and they look to food guidance systems to be able to inform them making better decisions for their family. Yet, it's, if this is what we're told is healthy, then how would they know? You know, that they, they no, don't necessarily have access to the knowledge and education that. Other people might who would know that they were healthy or unhealthy. So I think that's, yeah, that's super challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ty, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate um having the opportunity to chat to you and I um appreciate the work that you and your other members of your team at Gain are putting out there. Um and it's encouraging to sort of have these conversations because I think these are, you know, in with advocates for a better way of doing things because you know, change has to start somewhere. So um, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat to me and my my listeners. Um, are you able just to tell us where people can find more information about or from you, um, particularly? Is it Twitter is the best place to sort of get access to the things that you're working on?
1: Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm most active on Twitter. So my handle is tyrveal. That's t y r v e a l. Um. And I'll post research and other findings I find interesting. If you want to check out Gain; it's um, gainhealth.org, and you can see programs and news articles and blogs um, on there. And so you can get a sense of what we do. But um, absolutely, um, if you ever have any, um, you know, if any listeners want to send me a message, you can feel free to to share on social media, my emails. Um, you can find my email if you search. On Google. If you go to the game website, so, yeah.
0: that's awesome. Thank you so much, Ty, and I'll pop links to that in the show notes. So uh, enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Mickey. It was a pleasure.
0: All righty. Hopefully you enjoyed that. What a wealth of information, and I love that there is more emphasis and awareness put to food quality. The way that him and his team are sort of putting out there and it really does dispel some misconceptions about where you find nutrients in food next week on the podcast I talk to Professor Howard Schubiner all about the role of the brain in our experiences of pain until then you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition over on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin and on my website mickeywillardin.com where in addition to the recipe portal access you can sign up to any one of my meal plans or book a one-on-one consult with me all right team you have a great week see you next week